This is Famous Lost Words. I'm your host, Christopher Ward, along with the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Christopher, as you know, over the last many episodes since we began uh, doing Famous Lost Words, we have kind of pivotal interviews interviews that are absolute highlights to what we are doing right we've uh, we did an interview right. with mm-hmm. um we did your interview with uh, george harrison uh we did my interview with alanis morissette really great moments in the show's history today is going to be one of those shows one of the best interviews i've ever heard it's from 2004 and it's a chat with george michael this is exceptional, and I know that when I sent it to you, I edited it down. It was a full hour long, so I edited it down. We got just the best parts to play for everyone today, uh, and I know that when you heard it, you felt the same way. Was that an hour live originally? Yeah, pretty much. I think the actual raw interview was about 48 minutes, and then we would have edited that down, played played songs from that album. I think the album was called Patience, and, right. so, uh, and so, yeah, it was, uh, th- there was a lot to it, that's for sure. Wow. So what else we got going on today, Tom? Well, Christopher, we have an amazing early to mid-70s interview with Cher. It's both very entertaining and quite personal. We find out how she really feels about those outrageous clothes she wears and why people said she should not, under any circumstances, marry Sonny Bono. Really good stuff. But first, let's get started with the late, great George Michael. Great song from George Michael. That's called Amazing. And speaking of, here's Christopher. Hey, Tom. This is one of the most remarkable interviews from our deep archives, going back to 2004 for an extensive chat with the late George Michael, who is candid, engaging, thoughtful, funny, and insightful throughout. Now, over a 30-year career, Michael sold over 115 million records, 80 of those as a solo artist and the others with Andrew Ridgely and Wham!, His first solo album, Faith, sold over 25 million records alone. Now, along with his many awards, Michael collected eight Billboard number ones, including his duet with Elton John on Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, which they performed live at Live Aid in London in 1985. Mm -hmm. Without question, Michael led a rock star's life, filled with all the stuff you'd expect. Drug problems, car crashes, public indiscretions, more on that ahead. But he was also a committed and generous philanthropist throughout his life, supporting a long list of charities, many unknown until after his death in 2016 of natural causes. Mm. There's so much to this interview, and really, Tom, it made me appreciate him even more upon hearing it. And one of the things I want to do before we get started is give a shout-out to the interviewer. Her name is May Potts, and she is one of the finest interviewers in Canadian broadcasting. She's still at it, and when we did this interview in 2004, she was terrific in it. He starts off by talking about how personal his lyrics became. If you listen to... um my work over the years most of it has been very personal i just think in terms of um in terms of uh, getting closer to the truth you know that's what you hopefully do as a writer as you get older and i think because people know more about my private life and my sexuality um i think it's just easier to see how honest the, the lyrics are you know people know more about me than they used to so they can attach these lyrics to, to very um very particular issues i suppose it is so funny to think that the guy who wrote Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go would go on to become a very personal, introspective songwriter. Isn't that interesting? He opens up about his two outings, one of which was humorous. Well, I think it's just been beneficial to my life, really. 
I mean, I think um, I think uh, there are two. I mean, for for a, for a a gay celebrity, there are two outings. Really, there's the outing to the people you know and love. Um, and then there's the outing to the public, which are quite often very different experiences. And in my case, you know, uh, they're not quite, they're not not normally quite as humorous as as uh, as mine was. But I think that that uh, freedom in general, the more freedom you can experience in life, the 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 better your art is going to be. If that's what you you know, if, if you're a creative person, and I think uh, I suppose I'm just much much more relaxed about being honest and i don't th- i think actually mystery kind of worked for me when uh i was really down in the dumps and down on my luck in in personal terms but now i don't really see any purpose for it and uh i just want people to understand the the words i'm singing really that's one of my favorite clips of all the clips we've ever aired it speaks to how freeing it is for some people to come out and it's also interesting that it was beneficial to him in terms of his work his art and his life But there's something tragic about it, too. For as happy as George sounds in that clip and in this interview, he never seemed to find that peace and happiness in his life, ultimately. He may have been one of the best vocalists and performers of all time, but he seemed to dislike the spotlight so much that he never quite lived up to his potential, in my opinion. He had some enormous peaks in his life. But the fact that we're talking about George Michael from this interview in 2004, and it was really his final studio album, that fact alone speaks of the tragedy of kind of what George Michael never became. That is an artist as big and as enduring as, let's say, Elton John. I think he would definitely have been that had he kept going. Did you ever see him live? Yes, I saw Wham! live, and I liked it. I don't think I was a big oh. enough fan then, but to me it was too glitzy and, and glammy, and I, I, I really yeah. didn't love it as much. But man, you know, he sings one more, like, I think I rather would have seen him on his faith tour, him singing One More Try, or any of those uh, any of those great songs from Faith. Um, I think that was kind of his creative peak, and I would have probably enjoyed it more had I seen him then. Yeah, I saw the first solo tour, and I, I was amazed. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, he's a phenomenal live singer yeah but also the fact that he just he commanded the stage and and had a full show with only literally one record under his belt yeah. I mean I guess I guess you had the wham stuff as well yeah but still it was an amazing show for sure George talks about being 40 oh yes I think like I mean I think like a lot of people a lot of 40 year olds would tell you that much as uh, much as we'd all like to look 20 most of us wouldn't want to go back to being 20 again because Absolutely. you know you know you know so much less about yourself and um and hopefully if you're i mean i'm a very lucky man i've had some incredible experiences and i've had some highs and lows that have taught me a lot of lessons and at 40 i really do feel um totally uh confident in myself and my future you know boy and it's hard to believe that he would not make it past the age of 53 so tragic in this interview, George is not hesitant about expressing his opinions. Well, I think what people forget about me is that I've been around for a very long time. So, you know, 22 years ago when I came into the industry, the type of um, strength of feeling that I have about this issue was kind of uh, a common in the um, pop industry because music was still being made by... Um, idealists very often in their kind of mid-twenties that had a few opinions about the world. And now that um, really pop music has, and the mainstream is about um, younger children who really 
don't seem to want to mix politics with music. Um, somebody like me suddenly sounds like, you know, they've been let out of an asylum because because nobody else wants to rock the boat. Um, but my generation didn't have any problem with that. So I've always find it a bit alarming that, that, that you know, expressing um, the, an opinion is seen as such a... Uh, is seen as such a um, kind of revolutionary act these days in, in pop music. It is interesting right now, though, Christopher, that even though these are very controversial and political times, not a lot of artists are willing to express their beliefs. It's kind of unusual, and that's kind of his point way back in 2004, that not a lot of people were standing up then, and not a lot of people seem to be standing up now, although there are exceptions. And when someone does, it becomes more significant, like a Taylor Swift. Yeah, for sure. He offers advice to a young artist. You talk about uh, going back to your early days when you came out and that being the tone in a lot of the music. Let me just take you back to when you were just 16. If you could think of being an artist now at 16, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to that young budding musician about the art of creating music and the business of music now that you've had this wealth of experience in both? Well, I think I would have... I think I'd have one one major um, piece of advice for anybody who really considers themselves an artist, and that is that, um, I mean, myself, I wouldn't advise anybody to try and be famous in the mainstream these days because I think it's quite a dangerous thing to uh, want to achieve. It, the downsides are so massive. But for someone who wants a career of any real distinction, um, I think it's very important to remember that the only security you can really have in this industry is your craft, is in your craft. And that as long as you keep your musical integrity and you never make decisions on the basis of money, you make those decisions on the basis of how good a record you think you can produce and even how good a video you think you can make, as long as you can make your artistic statement and be proud of it, then the fame will be worth something. But if you actually give up on moving forward as an artist and and just kind of settle into the celebrity, then there's not going to be much to um, to make it worth it. I think celebrity is worth it if you're really, really achieving something as an artist and a person that makes you happy. But for the sake of it, it's... Um, an incredibly unrewarding experience. So I think people who are kind of like me that that want to be artists but are also desperate to be famous, which is what I wanted to be, um, just should try and keep a hold on that because the the fame these days is is not terribly rewarding. Whereas um, the craft and the art of making music will always feed them. You know. Interesting how good that advice is, and yet how prescient it is in a sad way. You can tell that he's been badly hurt by fame, and even though he sounds like he's in a great place, we know that ultimately it would not lead to a good place. In the next clip, he reveals his favorites among his old songs. When you look back over your back catalogue, and an artist like yourself has such a wealth of hits to choose from and still perform, which of those hits, because as, we, as you know, when you write songs, you're at a different place with, with each passage of time. Which of those hits still rings so true to you when you, when you get up to sing it? Mm, um, probably uh, A Different Corner, funnily enough, is one of those. I heard that on the radio the other day. I hadn't heard it for years, and I heard it on the radio, and I and I just thought, my God, you were miserable. <laughs> you know, you must have been so miserable to write that song. Um, but it, because I can hear the pain, I mean, I was only, I guess I was about 20 at that age, that uh, 20, 21 when I wrote Different Corner. But my God, it sounds kind of exposed and and, uh, and uh, really kind of torturous. Um there are quite a few songs, I suppose, that would still mean something to me. Uh, 
Let me think. Freedom, praying for time, you've been loved. There's quite a few, I mean, for different reasons, you know. This next one I love. He tells the story behind the creation of Careless Whisper. I used to write completely in my head. I would always write a song in its entirety in my head before I would go into the studio with it. Um, and this was easy, even when we were doing kind of little four-track demos. Uh, when I say we, I mean Andrew and I and a couple of other people before Wham! was formed. Um, and I used to write it bit by bit as I waited for my buses to take me back to and from work at the cinema. Um, so, which is probably why it's, it's full of all those cinema references, you know, silver screen stuff and all that. Uh, and I, I just remember exactly where I wrote um, the sax line. And the sax line um, started out as a lyric, which I won't give you because it's just terrible. But um, it started out as a lyric, and for some reason I remember where I wrote it. I remember it going through my head as I was handing my change to the um, bus conductor. And uh, some strange reason, I never, I never forgot that that was the moment I wrote that piece, that just that little piece of music, which is which is, I suppose, got something to do with the fact that it was going to become the most famous couple of bars that I would ever write, you know. You know, for those of us who are artistically challenged, this sounds way too easy, George. So please tell mm -hmm. me that the songs don't always just come to you that simply, or do they? Oh, no, they don't, no. And and I think they came to get to me much more easily and, and simply at 17 when I didn't really know that anyone was going to hear them, you know. <laughs> um, and... Uh, as you go along, I think that one of the things that people don't talk about as writers is that, that as you, um, if you're lucky enough to have sustained success, then uh, as the years go by, you have a, um, a stronger and stronger catalogue of songs which people have reacted really well to. And that in itself, your own catalogue begins to intimidate you because you constantly feel you have to better it, you know. Um, and that has slowed down the process for me, made it a lot more um, arduous over the years. For some reason, in the last last year, that feeling disappeared, and I kind of started writing with the ease that I had when I was very young. And um, a couple of the songs, two or three of the songs on this album, were kind of written and, and performed and, and recorded in a couple of days, you know. And even though I think I've written a lot of great music in the last 15 years, I think uh, the first five, it was easy. And for some reason, it's now easy again. So I'm just writing furiously. I haven't stopped writing. I'm still writing. Oh, does that mean that we don't have to wait another eight years for another release? Uh, uh, well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it means that I'm just going to keep, keep going right. this time keep going and and because having gone without the ability to write for a few years which is what happened before this album i kind of had the um the uh, traditional writer's block but it was very terrifying um having having uh, gone through that now that it's back and and i really feel like uh, i'm writing and singing on form i'm just going to keep putting stuff down while it lasts you know <laughs> it's funny it never occurred to me that he wrote that great sax riff on Careless Whisper, and it is the most memorable part of what is just a great song all the way through. That's great. Tom, this is an artist who put pressure on himself. I've kind of had enough of the way I do things at the moment. The pressure and the and the writer's block that I went through um, over the last three, four years has really made me understand that I need to be able to write music in order to be happy in life, and I need to write it in some way that doesn't pressure me the same way, you know? Um, and I'd really like to be writing regularly, 
putting music onto the internet regularly, hopefully having people make uh, give a lot of money for that that to different charities regularly and it and then there doesn't have to be this collection of of songs every so many years that you are or are not are, you know you're judged to have either succeeded or or done worse than your last work you know yeah you can tell he was stepping away from the merry-go-round of releasing an album all the time and doing a promotional tour and then going on a live tour he was uh, stepping away from that for sure here's a funny anecdote he tells the story of paying one and a half million pounds for a cheap piano. I do own the piano that uh, John Lennon wrote Imagine on. And um, there's a film uh, called Give Me Some Truth, which shows the, the recording of the, the, um, the album Imagine, which was done here in England. And you see John uh, playing Imagine to a couple of people, asking them what they think of it. And he's playing it on this, out, this um, piano that he, he wrote it on. And I just feel that I, I felt that the uh, I feel that Imagine is such a symbolic um, song, it's such a symbolic record uh, that I feel where it was written is a really important part of kind of Beatles history and Lennon's history. Uh, and I was kind of honoured to um, to get the opportunity to buy it, which it was auctioned uh, last year or two years ago. Also, it's a really it's a really cheap old piano. <laughs> it's not cheap. I mean, believe me, it was not cheap for me. I paid in the region of one and a half million pounds for it. But um, it looks like something really, really um, that you wouldn't be surprised to see at school. You know, it's like an upright. It's an upright piano with a couple of. But they are his authentic cigarette burns on it. So. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> and listen, I love the song Imagine, but that piano does sound like it sounds like a dirge like it sounds muddy and it doesn't sound like there's something about that sound that i actually don't like very much but you can't you can't deny how great the song is but it is funny that he paid that much money for what is essentially a kind of piano you'd find in a music class at a public school you know yeah or a secondhand store <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> So here's an odd one. A family tragedy became one of George's songs. Yeah, and he's about to refer to a song called My Mother Had a Brother. Listen to this. Well, it's not that the story was revealed to me recently. The honest truth is that the eldest member of my mother's family um, passed away last year, and she was the only person that I felt would be offended by me telling this story. Um so I, in in reality, I didn't feel that it was respectful to write it before now. But it is a totally um, true story, and unfortunately, it's very tragic. It's a story of uh, my mother's brother who uh, killed himself um, within twenty four hours of my birth, um, which would indicate, of course, that he had waited to commit suicide because he was afraid of something going wrong with my mother's pregnancy. Um, and I just felt that that was such a tragic, um, tragic, tragic incident. And that, uh, and also because my mother, um, when she told me about him, which was when I was about 17 years old, um, she also told me she thought he was gay. And, um, and I felt that that tragedy had a connection to my life, you know. So this is a very important song for me, really. Oh, wow. You can hear how deeply personal his music is and the tragedy that is embedded in George's life. Wow. You know, Tom, there was actually talk of a Wham! musical at one point. I also read somewhere recently that you and Andrew Ridgely had been approached to do a Wham! musical. Is this true? And if it is, are you going to get involved? Well, the, the, actually, two or three different um, 
producers got to get have uh, approached us with different scripts um i'm really torn here i'm really torn because on one hand i know an awful lot of people would love it and i actually i kind of i would also uh it would be great for andrew obviously because some he has publishing on some of these songs because people forget he co-wrote some of the wham songs um and that would be great so and i'd love to do that for him at the same time i just have this problem with um you know, Wham was very close to pastiche quite often anyway. You know, whether you th- when you think kind of Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and Freedom stuff, I just have this this awful picture of kind of really badly stage-trained voices trying to sing Wham, and I think it might get even cheesier. <laughs> Whereas I think Wham is great cheese. You know, some of it was not cheese, but some of it was just great cheese. Fromage is our friend, as some people say. But... Uh, if you use the, if you take that just if you take the charm of of two kids that were so excited to be in the position that they were you know and the youth out of it if you take all of that out of it i just don't know what whether what's left is kind of cringeworthy i'm sure it would do incredibly well because they're the type of songs that would work well in in musical terms but i'm still i'm still kind of fighting my own snobbery over this one what do you think do you think i should do it i think that if it's going to happen you should be involved with it to have control over what's going on oh they can't make i i have to i mean i you have know, to give my permission anyway but no but i mean songs. more than permission i mean what would you mm-hmm. think about being like an executive producer on something like this oh uh, i suppose that that's where the money is isn't <laughs> yeah, it? I think that's so. definitely where the money is um I don't know. I don't think. I, I think where the the point I would have to start from is there would have to be a great story because yes. you know they weave. It wouldn't be the story of Andrew and I. I'm sure it would be some kind of romantic story, and if you could maybe tie it into the 80s into some social phenomena from the 80s, then maybe it could work. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It's still. It's still. I'm still open to offers. Put it that way. That's so great. Him talking about uh, uh, Wham's music as being like this pastiche of cheese or fromage is our friend. I love that. I love it. You know, Christopher, it's interesting that he was thinking of Andrew in reference to whether or not he should be doing the Wham musical because it would be good for Andrew. Andrew finally has written a book and it's called Ah. Wham, George and Me. So Andrew Ridgely... One half of Wham, the duo, has finally put out a book. He thinks that a biopic, a movie version of his book, would be great. George is covering all the topics here today. Here he talks about his feelings on politics. You know what? Politics to me is is like an anagram of the word compromise. So it's nowhere, there's no way I would go anywhere near it. Absolutely not. Also, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think... I think uh, I would suddenly have um, a lurid past, don't you think? <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think, the, I think the think the path to glory may be um, may be strewn with danger for me. But uh, no, I would never. I would never want to do it. Um, I. I. There is a possibility that that um, there are a couple of things that I would maybe want to lend my name to before I disappear because I fully di- fully intend to disappear. Um, and that would mean for me disappearing from a lot of charitable stuff as well. So there are a couple of things I'd like to do in in terms of um, maybe some minor social change, uh, just using my position a little bit before I disappear. But I, but other than that, there's really uh, no, there's definitely no no looking at politics for me. What do you mean by disappear? Uh, I don't have a public life, but if I did have one to step down from, I would. <laughs> but I won't be basically being um, expecting 
radio coverage or TV coverage or you know and why because would you it do won't that? be why would you step away um simply because I think the nature of celebrity has changed and the media is is out of control and it's something I don't really want to be involved with I mean I can't stop being George Michael they're not going to leave me al- alone necessarily but um I just don't feel that it's uh, an arena for what I want to say anymore. Um, Do you feel you've and- been misunderstood? No, I don't think so at all. I think the public has been amazing. I've had incredible support. Um, I'm not. I don't have complaints about um, uh, being a popular musician. I'm just trying to live my life in a way that I believe will will keep me sane enough to keep making music. And I think that there are several possibilities. Uh, I think that I think that the media in general and celebrity is becoming more and more insane, and you're being expect asked to uh, asked to be something completely different to the celebrities of of yesteryear, as it were. And I'm a celebrity of yesteryear, so. right? Well, I don't know about that. You still seem very current to us, mm-hmm. <laughs> not so much. Yes, but I'm not saying that I'm not. I'm a celebrity that was also of yesteryear. Let's let's put it that way then. And I've you, been around a long time, and I and it kind of you know this is not this is not really the celebrity that I, the kind of celebrity I signed up for, um, and it seems that everything I say or do uh, is a matter of some controversy, and I and and I don't really think that that's very healthy for a for a creative person, you know. I know this sounds really to most people this just sounds uh, petty and and whatever. I just know that I'm I'm that all that matters to me is that I keep writing, and whatever keeps me sane to do that is what I'm going to have to do, you know. Man, he's so smart and articulate and self-aware in this. Truly one of the best interviews we've ever played on this show. Well, this is the last clip, Tom. Interesting one. He tells why he thinks he has lasted. Of course, to begin with, I I do believe that I'm very lucky. I have a... God has chosen to, to give me something that people want, you know, in terms of my ability to write songs and sing them. Um, but on top of that, I think I have just the right type of... Um, I don't know insecurity dysfunction to to have uh, really have a close eye on everything and make sure I I keep control of my career but I think also I've protected my life to um to the degree that it's obvious to people that I'm still I still have the same intent as I had the first day I ever made a record which is to share something with people and to genuinely have a it for it to be very important to me that they that they appreciate it and that they respond um a lot of people lose that hunger uh and i think maybe one of the things that takes that away from them is a lot of uh say 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 you're uh, i don't know oasis or your or uh, almost any band that's achieved great success has had a period where they were a press darling you know, um, and quite often that's their ruination. And luckily for me, I've never had a period like that. I was never, maybe because where I come from, uh, and the original, you know, the original impression I made, which was, um, you know, mincing about in shorts with Andrew, uh, maybe it's something to do with that. But to this day, the jury has always been out on George Michael, not in the in the public domain, but in the domain of you know. Uh, critics, reviewers. I wish to. I'd love to say none of them had ever bothered me, but they do, and and they've kind of kept me on my toes just by never completely agreeing that I that I was um, you know worthy of my status. And in a way, that kind of that's uh, that's been a plus. So I've had all kinds of benefits, I think. Um, 
at the end of the day, I think hope, hopefully because I still love what I do and I still love giving people pleasure, you know. Funny how almost all the clips we've heard today from George Michael could serve as an epitaph for him. Intelligent and so talented. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I have an odd little postscript for you. This is just something that I remembered, and I obviously had to look it up. Mm-hmm. Back in 1990, a 27-year-old Michael offered an interview to the LA Times Calendar magazine in which he discussed his growing disillusionment with his international fame. It got a response from a certain famous singer. Mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra replied, I don't understand a guy who lives in hopes of reducing the strain of his celebrity status, he quoted. <laughs> And now that he's a smash songwriter at 27, he wants to quit doing what tons of gifted youngsters all over the world would shoot grandma for? <laughs> Just one crack at what he's complaining about. Come on, George, loosen up. Swing, man. <laughs> <laughs> Talent must not be wasted. Those who have it, and you obviously do, or today's calendar cover would have been about Rudy Valley. I <laughs> don't know where that reference came from. Yeah. Those who have talent must hug it, embrace it, nurture it, and share it. Trust me, I've been there. <laughs> wow, that's great. There's you know, old there's, blue eyes. there's old blue eyes. And, you know, there's part of it is, you know, he sounds like an old guy complaining about a new guy. But let's think about this just a little bit because George did come across very, very often as someone who was very, very cranky about fame. Oh, yeah. And he even says in that interview a few times about how he doesn't want that and he didn't basically didn't sign up for it and that is so interesting and i it there's something really deep seated in terms of what george michael was dealing with throughout his life right so i get in a way i get kind of what sinatra is saying yeah, like you got to loosen up and just go with it but there's also <laughs> there's also <laughs> something humorous about Hey, Sinatra going, hey, George, swing, baby, you know? Swing, man. <laughs> While we're young, you know? <laughs> Love it. That's right. That's right. Okay. Anyway, excellent stuff from George Michael on Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm your host, Christopher Ward, along with Tom Jokic. They say we're young and we don't know. Won't find out Sonny and Cher, I got you, babe. Go ahead, Christopher. <laughs> Tom, Sherilyn Sarkisian is an American classic. She's had hit records, TV shows, and films. Better known as Cher, she started her long ride in the public eye in 1965 when she and then-husband Sonny Bono had a number one hit record with I Got You Babe, written and produced by Sonny. Two years later, they'd sold 40 million records. Now, post-Sonny and Cher, she's had hits as a solo artist like Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, and Bang Bang... My baby shot me down. (laughs) To the surprise of many, she proved herself a formidable actress as well, starting in the 1980s with Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Have you seen that uh, film, by the way? No, I have not. It looks like it's taking place on the set of uh, a theatrical production. Yeah. It's all very much in in one space. And that puts so much emphasis on the performances, of course. And and she is fantastic. And her career as an actor, I suppose you could say, culminated with an Oscar for her performance in Moonstruck, directed by Norman Jewison. Oh, she was so, so good in that. So good. Yeah. As a recording artist, she had one of the greatest comebacks of all time with Believe, the auto-tuned dance track that was <laughs> everywhere in 1998. Okay. Shares won a Grammy, an Emmy, three Golden Globes, and an Oscar. What next? 
Well, <laughs> yes. On a daily basis, check out her Twitter feed if you want to get an earful of political opining. Oh, for sure. And Cher is one of those people who kind of keeps her caps lock on when she writes any message <laughs> on Twitter. So it seems like she's yelling, but it's very, but she's, right. she's very smart. And her and it's fun to watch her and Bette Midler. Um, with their opinions oh, yeah. on on the on the day's politics or the day's news, it's pretty uh, it's pretty entertaining, and sometimes it's very powerful as well. Very funny stuff, though. Yeah, this interview with Cher from the seventies is a classic. She's mm-hmm. funny, outspoken, candid, and completely over the top. <laughs> Here's Cher's conversation with Jeannie Becker, starting oh, with the view yeah. that her business, yeah, her business is work. Not glamour. Do you find it as glamorous? Do you feel as glamorous on the stage as you do in front of the camera? God, I don't ever think of it so much in front of the camera as glamorous because it's work. You know, it's my work. I don't ever think of it. I just think of it as my work and I really enjoy it, but I don't ever think of it as glamorous. I think of, like, sometimes, there's only been a few things that I've ever done that I actually thought, boy, this is glamorous while while I was doing it. Once at the Metropolitan Museum, there was a big party, and I went to it. I flew in for it. I mean, I know people think that I must jet set all around the world, but that's kind of, I, I've only flown in, I've only ever flown anywhere for one party, and that was the Metropolitan Museum, and the reason I did was because they were having an exhibit of the history of the movies and clothing, and I was the only person from television that they put in there, so I thought it was a great honor, so I flew in for that, and I thought how glamorous and how exciting, and there were hundreds of people in this beautiful, beautiful Metropolitan, and and it was decorated great, and it was wonderful. And so that was kind of the only thing that I ever... I don't think of my business as glamour. Man, I just love Cher, and I love her in this interview. Well, she loves the clothes, she says, but it's much more than that. I mean, I, you know, it's like I work for a living, and I know... It's like I give you a per- perfect... I, I saw my new clothes for the, for the show, you know, and I just thought, oh, God, they're so beautiful. I love them, you know. But I knew that within two weeks, I would hate them or not even think about them one way or another because they're just my work clothes. And every night I put them on and every night I take them off. And what I find is exciting about the show is the show itself and not the clothes or not anything. It's just the feeling that's in the area. It's in the show when we're doing it. It doesn't even have that much to do with me. I enjoy it almost like I'm not doing it myself. Can you imagine? Those are just my work clothes. That is so funny. (laughs) (laughs) All those Bob Mackie gowns and stuff, right? Yeah. Of course, she also says she loves the clothes and then a week later hates the clothes. But, you know, you got a whole tour to do now. Mm -hmm. She talks about living life in the public eye. No, I've never tried to hide anything. And a lot of people feel that that's my big mistake, that I should have tried to be more private. But in a way, it was really impossible because there was no way. It's like when Richard Nixon got busted there was no way as much as he wanted to hide everything there was no way of hiding it so there was no way of me i mean i was already in the public eye when everything started to just go crazy there was no way i was going to hide it and also i think you only try and hide things when you're ashamed of them and there are only i can only think of two things in my life that i wish i hadn't done that i'm one of my one of them i'm ashamed of myself for and the other one was just a matter of having to do it and it being something that I didn't want to do, but something that I just had to do. And and those are only two things. Everything else that I've done, even if it was wrong or if I thought it was stupid afterwards, 
I didn't care who knew about it or any of that stuff because that's just life. Even people make mistakes, and a lot of stuff that I did, I don't feel I don't feel they were mistakes. I think that they were. That's part of my life, and and I've never been someone who cared a whole bunch about whatever people thought about me. You know, I just never. I mean, if I had, I would have never married Sonny because everybody hated Sonny when I decided I was going to go with him. You know, so I don't think about that. Oh, that's awesome! People hated Sonny, but I married him anyway. <laughs> Well, as all of us can imagine, getting ripped by the press is no fun, even when you're used to it. You know, when people write stuff, and lately I've been getting really dished. I mean, they tore me apart in Washington. The people loved the show, and it was great, and I had a good time. And the, and the two ladies there just ripped me apart for no apparent reason, because they didn't really rip the show apart. They just went after me with a fine-tooth comb and said really horrible things. And, and when I got here... This Bruce Kirkland from the Star had taken one of the ladies' articles and run it up here. And I thought, what is, what is this? The worst article that was ever written about me. And this guy doesn't, and I, well, like I did an interview with him and for half an hour, and then he didn't even use his interview. He took this chick's interview from the Post. I mean, I'm going to the theater and I'm reading this article. And I started to cry. I got so angry. And just, I mean, I was hell on wheels. I was just really, I'd had it. Oh, she calls out Bruce Kirkland from the Toronto Star. That's interesting. And it shows you how upsetting a really bad review is, especially a lot of artists say, you know, if they had a point to make about the music, sometimes I agree with that point. But when they get personal or when they say things where you wonder, were they even listening to the album or were they even at the concert that they're reviewing? You know, that that is really, it's so upsetting to the artists when they read some of these reviews and you go... They, I, I'm fairly certain this critic has no idea what they're even saying. Well, if if a critic is going to slice and dice someone, should they give them an opportunity to respond? I mm. mean, this is probably a, <laughs> a question with no answer, but That's right. nevertheless. Yeah. <laughs> she does understand the press. I feel that the press is this. I feel the press is like, for me, the press is like an earthquake. They don't go out to intentionally kill me, which they could. Very few of them do. I feel that they've you know, even though they've written every single thing there is to write about me until people are sick of it. It's like an earthquake because they don't go out intentionally to hurt me. I'm just there. And so if I get hurt in the process, it's just tough, you know. Or like, I feel like the mountain. I mean, the reason people write about me is because I'm there, not because they want to hurt me particularly. It just, it sells magazines or press or print or newspapers or whatever. And so it makes, it makes, it's money. Mm. Yeah, well, she makes some good points there. Yeah, and I hear Cher goes on about the importance of a calm home life. It seems real natural to me. I mean, I try and make this right here as much like my home life as I possibly can. Otherwise, I would go nuts because whatever people think about me, and one thing, my home life is so important and, and tranquility is so important to me because... I always feel that people who are confused need to start off from a base of a lot of, lot of tranquility because I can confuse myself so easily. So if I start out and everything is nice and calm at home, then I can just kind of wander off and get into my own trouble. But I, I need this kind of settled, serene atmosphere here, and then I can go out and do all the craziness out on stage. You can see how the insanity of fame can seem so glamorous, but just like you and me, 
Cher is just happy to have a quiet night in. <laughs> Maybe she'd prefer that, but that's you know it's her job to get out there and look fabulous and sing with that unique voice. But man, she can still belt. That's great. Well, I like the fact that she's over the top, you know, completely self consciously, and then you know, utterly clear-eyed about what her needs are just as a fellow human being. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's a lot in here for me. Yeah. Great stuff with Cher from our archives. That's a wrap for this episode. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh. Executive producer Rob Farina. Special thanks to Rob Basile at Orbit Media and Tim Friedlander at Soundbox in Los Angeles. You can get caught up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app. And you can follow us on Facebook, Famous Lost Words, and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Talk to you next time.